Thank you, uh, Dr. Ashford, for inviting me to return to the alma mater of my wife, uh, Karen Searcy Yarnell, who graduated with her Master of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, when I was a young pastor in the area in the mid-1990s. It has been a profound honor to be invited for many reasons. Uh, treasured lifelong friends on the faculty and the staff, uh, formative memories from the churches north of the Research Triangle, and a seminary with a proven, courageous, and virtuous leadership. However, the greatest honor has to do with today's lecture topic. Uh, Dr. Daniel Aiken, who was my wife's systematic theology professor, which uh, means that she got her theology from Dr. Aiken, and I get all of my theology from my wife. <laughs> so if you have any issues, please take them up with Dr. Aiken. <laughs> the uh, president of this venerable institution chose a motto for Southeastern that captures the spirit of both the Baptist and the Anabaptist movements. Go, or I am going. The motto captures the first part of the fourfold commission laid upon his churches by our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of his earthly ministry. After his atoning death on the cross and his justifying resurrection from the dead and immediately prior to his ascension to the right hand of the Father, from whence he will one day come to judge the living and the dead. We shall begin both today's and Thursday's lectures with a quote from a 16th century Anabaptist martyr named Thomas Van Embroek. His confession was published in 1558. On March 5th of that year, after repeated cross-examination, cruel torture, and vain attempts to convert him, this 25-year-old missionary was beheaded for eloquently defending this faith. Hence, he says, the words of Christ in what we call the Great Commission declare that teaching must take place before and after baptism in order that the person baptized may use diligence to observe after baptism the gospel which was presented to him before baptism and all things commanded him, for he is no more Lord over himself. And we'll finish that quote on Thursday. The Great Commission was given to the church in order to prepare humanity for the second coming of Jesus Christ. On the coming day of the Lord, the nations will be required to give an account of their conduct. Human beings will be judged for the sinful deeds we have done and for the good deeds we have left undone. There is only one way to avoid the condemnation that is rightfully ours, and that is through faith in the crucified and resurrected King, whose imminent reign will put an end to the misuses we human beings have inflicted upon his creation, to the abuses we have inflicted upon his precious image, and most importantly, to the faithlessness we have inflicted upon his glory. Such faith must be a true faith, a covenantal faith. More about that in a moment. The Great Commission was understood by our theological cousins, the Continental Anabaptists, 
in ways very similar to those exposited in the preaching and practice of our direct forefathers, the English Baptists. By the way, do you know what the difference is visually between a Baptist and an Anabaptist? This is a Baptist. This is an Anabaptist. The General Baptists of the early 17th century read this passage structurally so as to preserve the precedence of faith in relation to baptism. The particular Baptist, Benjamin Keach, popularized and regularized the term Great Commission to describe our focal passage in the late 17th century. So Great Commission is actually older. It appears in the early 17th century, but it becomes popular uh, through the writings of Benjamin Keach, late 17th century. And the evangelical Baptists, Andrew Fuller and William Carey, revolutionized our own understanding of this passage in the late 18th century, thereby launching the modern missions movement, which has shaped Southern Baptist life and thought in significant ways, compelling us to obey Jesus like never before. But a century before the Baptists broke from the Puritan separatists of England, the Anabaptists in Switzerland, Austria, Germany, the Netherlands, Moravia, and Italy, among other places, were advocating an interpretation of this passage that presaged the modern message movement. Would you open your Bibles or turn on your iPad, whatever, to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And I'd like to read this passage as we consider how the Anabaptists understood the Great Commission. So we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to interpret it as they would. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the broad history of interpretation, by the Church of Jesus Christ, the Great Commission has been emphasized in four primary ways. Uh, one was taken up uh, by the early church fathers. The other three were actually pioneered uh, by the Anabaptists, but have been taken up by many others since then. These four primary ways, and this is our structure that we'll be following today, are the dogmatic emphasis, the structural emphasis, the missionary emphasis, and the covenantal emphasis. The dogmatic, the structural, the missionary, and the covenantal. Uh, so let's explore each of these. First of all, the dogmatic emphasis. 
The dogmatic emphasis uh, is due to the early church fathers. The early church fathers, such as the great Cappadocian, uh, uh, Basil of Caesarea, developed the theological emphasis. It was very clear to Basil that the baptism prescribed by Jesus is an act of worship that is pointed in prayer to one name. So baptism is an act of worship to God. It's given to this one name. It's prescribed by Jesus, and it concerns this one God, and yet this God also has three names, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the initial act of Christian discipleship is thus an act of dogmatic identification. When you were baptized, you were baptized in the name of this God with one name and yet three names. The classical creeds took their Trinitarian form from the Great Commission, these symbols. And so Christianity has been dogmatically determined by the emphasis of the early church upon the Trinitarian formula in the baptismal section of the Great Commission. Every Orthodox Christian has subsequently begun his or her formal walk as a believer through self-identification with the threefold name of this one name, this triune God. We understand today who God is, if I can use classical language, as three persons in one substance, uh, to a de great, great degree because of the Trinitarian interpretation of the baptismal formula by the church fathers. Both their own writings and the trial records of their persecutors indicate that the Anabaptists likewise received these creeds, especially the Apostles' Creed, but also the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, which can be found in their works. And they use these creeds as helpful summaries of the New Testament gospel. I encourage my systematic theology students, I actually require it of them, uh, to memorize the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and the purpose in that is to help them in their preaching. Now, because if you don't get in the gospel, which is in these creeds, in your preaching, I wonder if you're really preaching the gospel. So like the fathers, the 16th century Anabaptists held to a dogmatic understanding of the Great Commission. So there's the dogmatic emphasis. Let's also look at the structural emphasis. And this is the second. Abraham Friesen has demonstrated conclusively that the 16th century evangelical Anabaptists garnered their understanding of the structural dimension of the Great Commission from the Greek New Testament and the annotations... Uh, or paraphrases of the great Renaissance humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus schooled all of the reformers by taking them back to Christianity's primary sources and reevaluating the late medieval church's theology and practice in light of our founding documents. The path to Martin Luther's doctrines, the Reformation doctrines of sola scriptura, and the rediscovery of justification by faith alone was set. Erasmus also taught that all Christians should read Scripture in their own language and function as theologians. Luther gave early attention to the priesthood of all believers, but the Anabaptists implemented the universal priesthood even more thoroughly. The Reformation's three great dogmas, the authority of Scripture over tradition, the justification of sinners by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, 
and the priesthood of all believers have their germ in the New Testament ruminations of Erasmus. They have their explication in the explosive preaching of Luther. And they have their most thorough affirmation among the Anabaptists. The structural emphasis in the interpretation of the Great Commission has to do with how we understand the ordering of the commission, and therefore the ordering of our whole lives as believers. Erasmus and the Anabaptists noticed that the participles going, baptizing, and teaching modify and are placed in a particular sequence of salvation life with make disciples. First, the disciples must go. Then they must make disciples. And only then should they baptize the new disciples. And then after baptism, the full teaching of Jesus must be given. Erasmus described it in this way, now, paraphrasing the teaching of Jesus. After you have taught them these things and they believe what you have taught them, have repented their previous lives and are ready to embrace the doctrine of the gospel, then immerse them in water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that by this holy sign they may believe that they have been delivered freely through the benefit of my death, says Jesus, from the filthiness of their sins and now belong to the number of God's children. And so Erasmus conceptually, now he didn't follow through with practice, but conceptually he had already spelled out the structural nature of the Great Commission. Baltazar Hubmeyer conveniently put the structural logic of Erasmus on the Great Commission in German in this way, breaking down make disciples according to its own biblical phenomenology of proclamation, hearing, and faith, which he got from Romans chapter 10. Uh, so here, uh, these five steps, as uh, Hubmeyer put it, Wort, Gehör, Glaub, Tauf, Werk, or in English, preach the word, number one, preach the word, number two, hear the gospel, number three, believe in Christ, number four, receive baptism, and then number five, work or follow Christ. As Hubmeyer's paradigm demonstrates, the Anabaptists implemented what Erasmus discovered. The making of a disciple must precede the reception of baptism. Moreover, baptism must start the transition into a transformed way of life for the individual and the community as Christians learn to obey all of Christ's commands. This is a totalistic commission. This structural understanding of the Great Commission became an axiom that can be found throughout the evangelical Anabaptists' confessions, their theological writings, their personal letters, and their trial records. They were threatened with torture, with drowning, and with burning at the stake for embracing this structural understanding. But because their Savior and King Jesus commanded a specific structure, they chose a death of obedience to Christ over a life of obedience to man. Our third emphasis, the missionary emphasis. The third emphasis of the Anabaptists in their exegesis of the Great Commission concerns mission. So after dogmatics, after structure, comes mission. 
While much ink has been spilled regarding whether or not the magisterial reformers, especially Martin Luther and John Calvin, were for or against missions, the scholarship has generally settled upon seeing them as generally for missions, but in often inappropriate ways. Luther saw his primary mission as converting unbelievers from the Roman delusion. Calvin was more proactive than Luther, and you can uh, see more uh, missions coming out of Calvin than you can Luther. And so he has some claim to helping set the ground for the modern missions movement. However, both the Lutherans and the Reformed, as well as the Roman Catholics, used some problematic methods to advance their views. They had an unfortunate and knee-jerk commitment to the corpus Christianum, the idea that society is one Christian body, which begins with infant baptism and is maintained through state support of church structures and state persecution against dissenters. According to the opponents of the Anabaptists, the Christianity of most people was to be determined by their magistrate. The Anabaptists begged to disagree. Their idea of mission was settled in the idea of planting churches, evangelizing souls, being different than the broader society, being holy, following Christ. When it came to the Great Commission, Rome saw itself as taking the apostles' place in its fulfillment. The reformers often responded against Rome that the commission was fulfilled in the apostles. And against Erasmus and the Anabaptists, the reformers tried their best to undermine the structural dimensions of the Great Commission. Uh, some of it's really quite funny. One uh, Hessian reformer argued that baptism actually preceded the, the making of a disciple in Matthew 28 in the Greek. But he was dismissed, even by his fellow scholars, as ridiculous. Ulrich Zwingli outright denied that Jesus instituted baptism in Matthew 28. And Luther accepted Matthew 28 as the institution of Christ, but argued infants might have implicit faith prior to their baptism. Go figure. The Anabaptists properly saw that making a disciple follows baptism, but that is not all they took from the Great Commission. And William Carey later rediscovered what the Anabaptists long before understood, that the Great Commission is intended for fulfillment today that it involves all Christians in its fulfillment, and that it is to be fulfilled through going to the entire world. As Franklin Littell put it, with a passion unparalleled in the 16th century, the Anabaptists were sending their missionaries wherever they could get a hearing, for the earth, remember he has all power, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and no land should be forbidden to the proclamation of the gospel. The Anabaptists implemented the priesthood of all believers by calling all believers to the work of the Great Commission. While their Vorsteher, their Anabaptist elders, and their Sinbote, uh, their missionaries, while these elders and missionaries were set apart by the congregation to lead in witness and baptism, all the people were still called to mission. Now, there really is no proper reason to use the language of clergy and laity among the Anabaptists, and I dare say among the Baptists as well. After working through numerous trial records, uh, Wolfgang uh, Scheofule uh, concluded that Anabaptism 
would not have been able to spread so rapidly and to take such firm roots if the missionary activity of leaders had not been vigorously supported by the missionary activity of the ordinary members. There were two major movements outwardly in early Anabaptism, according to Hans Kastorf. Between 1525 and 1527, there were uncoordinated but highly effective ministries carried out by Conrad Grable in the early group from Zurich. And they were uh, often persecuted to death. Grable died of natural causes. After the April 1527 meeting of Anabaptist leaders in Augsburg, the so-called Martyrs Synod, they followed a more programmatic approach. They divvied up the world and then they went out. At least six Anabaptist leaders are thought to have baptized 3,000 or more converts each. Effective missionaries. Hans Hoot was believed to have baptized an incredible 12,000 converts to Christ. As for method, uh, one scholar found that the gospel was spread through the networks of family connections, occupations, and neighborhoods. One young Anabaptist decided to go share the gospel in his brother's home, and his brother rejected him. But his cousin was there and heard him and then invited him to his home, and before you know it, a church had uh, grown up. It was interesting among the employers and the employees, uh, the, uh, the employers might witness, but typically it was the employees witnessing to other employees and to the employer, bringing people to new life in Christ. They evangelized personally, they held Bible studies, and they wrote letters. They were so effective that the state began passing laws against hiring anybody even suspected of heresy. Women also participated in this witnessing effort, and they were effective. And so effective, the Württemberg government considered the propaganda activity of Anabaptist women who spread their faith through word of mouth or through booklets so dangerous that married women who could not be expelled on account of their little children were chained at home so they could not lead other people astray. And there's one home in Austria that's still standing where the chain is connected. And you can visit that today. Literally chained. As a result of such bravery and boldness, one historian concluded this. The woman in Anabaptism emerges as a fully emancipated person in religious matters and as the independent bearer of Christian convictions. But women also often paid a heavy price for such Christian conviction. Because if they did not recant, they too could be put to death. But when persecution occurred, the Anabaptists often exploded in number. And one time I was at my house, Dr. Ashford, in, in Louisiana, and there was a spider. And I thought, I'm going to kill that thing. Well, I killed it. And there were, I'm the it looked like 3,000 spiders just blossomed and went everywhere. It made me very careful about killing spiders. When the persecuting churches, Rome, Geneva, Wittenberg, when they killed the Anabaptists, uh, 
it often ended up in massive growth for the Anabaptist cause. It is said that only two of the 60 leaders at the Augsburg Synod actually escaped a martyr's death. These persecuted believers of Jesus would often flee their homes and go elsewhere, like the early church fleeing Jerusalem, witnessing and winning people everywhere they went. After Michael Sattler's spectacular and effective witness to Christ from the fire, the Roman magistrates began to put the Anabaptists to death in less public venues. They would execute them at night rather than in the day. The biggest hindrance to the Anabaptist mission occurred when they themselves closed themselves off within sectarian communities and refused to have a witness. Four verses from an Anabaptist hymn written and used in one of their early commissioning services captures the Anabaptist passion for evangelistic missions. I'm not going to sing it to you. Actually, when I was a pastor, I, I had a I just had this desire to share my faith through song, and so I, I sang a hymn at the, in the middle of a sermon, and it was the only time I've ever had representatives from the congregation come to me as a pastor and ask me not to do something. <laughs> Crushed my soul. I did not realize I totally lacked in musical ability. But listen to this hymn. I will not sing it to you. As God, his son, was sending into this world of sin, his son is now commanding that we, this world, should win. He sends us and commissions to preach the gospel clear, to call upon all nations to listen and to hear. To thee, O God, we're praying, we're bent to do thy will. Thy word we are obeying, thy glory we fulfill. All peoples we are telling to mend their sinful way, that they might cease rebelling, lest judgment be their pay. So the Antipathists had a missionary emphasis, a mission emphasis in their understanding of the Great Commission. But that's not all. Not only did they contribute to our understanding a structural emphasis that baptism uh, comes after conversion, and not only uh, did they uh, emphasize the missionary nature of the Great Commission, the going, they would fully understand your motto, go, or I am going. But they also have a, a covenant emphasis, and this is something that Baptists today might want to really consider in addition to the other two, the covenant emphasis. For most of our churches have failed to remember that they were begun with covenants. The fourth and final Anabaptist emphasis from the Great Commission concerns the fourth of the verbals from the Great Commission, teaching them all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. Harold Bender famously and correctly noted that the Anabaptists were characterized by the call to follow Jesus. But discipleship is only possible in the context of the gracious call to enter the covenantal life with Jesus. The only way that you can fulfill the Great Commission is if the Spirit of God brings you the grace to do so. And if you have the Spirit of God, then you will be entering a covenant, a covenant that includes faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to Jesus Christ. It is a participation in the Trinitarian Covenant. It is 
part of a horizontal covenant. We get that. We agree with one another. But it's also a participation in the vertical covenant, an agreement with God that God himself endorses for this body. I have dealt with Anabaptist discipleship as theological foundation in my early book, The Formation of Christian Doctrine, that uh, Dr. Ashford mentioned. And I have recently dealt with covenant at length in my most recent writing on Anabaptism in the fourth strand of the Reformation. But let's listen to Bender's description, because I think he says it very well. He says this, first and fundamental in the Anabaptist vision was the conception of the essence of Christianity as discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would understand this. It was a concept which meant the transformation of the entire way of life of the individual believer and of society so that it should be fashioned after the teachings and example of Christ. These were not docetic believers. They didn't proclaim their faith one day and disappear the next. They had to live a visible life in Christ. The Anabaptists could not understand a Christianity which made regeneration, holiness, and love primarily a matter of intellect, of doctrinal belief, or of subjective experience, rather than one of the transformation of life. Repentance must be evidenced by newness of behavior. The whole life, Bender says, the whole life was to be brought literally under the lordship of Christ in a covenant of discipleship, a covenant which the Anabaptist writers delighted to emphasize. In the fourth strand of the Reformation, I argued that the covenant theology of the Anabaptists extended beyond the Great Commission. The Anabaptists, by the way, again, did not use the term Great Commission. Instead, they spoke of the rule of Christ. That was their terminology, the rule of Christ, which privileges the commands of their Lord and King with regard to them as individuals, but especially with regard to them as church. The rule of Christ includes the Great Commission of Matthew 28, but it starts inwardly and personally with the saving confession of of Peter in Matthew 16, when a believer is united with God and his church through faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The rule of Christ considers baptism to be a covenant as described in the covenant of a good conscience with God of 1 Peter 3.21. This baptism was understood as both inner baptism by the Holy Spirit or regeneration and as an outer baptism by water, which witnesses to the internal conversion. Water is a co-witness. Water baptism is a mitzoignus to spirit baptism. The rule of Christ requires that the covenant also be continually renewed through the communal celebration of Christ's blood of the covenant which is memorialized in the Lord's Supper of Matthew 26. And finally, the rule of Christ preserves the believer through the communal discipline required by the Lord in Matthew 18. 
Now, for the Anabaptists, it wasn't just this idea of go and make a disciple and then drop them. No, 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 no. Or go and make a disciple and then baptize them. It did not stop there. You had to go on and teach them how to turn the entirety of their life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Anything less is really not the Great Commission. Erasmus wrote that conceptually, immersion should happen only after a person who hears the gospel is ready, quote, ready henceforth to walk according to the evangelical doctrine. Now, by evangelical doctrine, Erasmus meant the gospel doctrines of the Apostles' Creed and a transformed life as well. Anabaptists, like the first drowned martyr, uh, martyr, Felix Mons, took Erasmus beyond conception and into action. The convert, Mons said, must believe in heart, and the convert must do righteous works from a changed heart. Now, the Anabaptists did affirm justification by grace through faith, and so they were not Roman. They disagreed with Roman Catholic theology in that way. They were thoroughly evangelical. Uh, Michael Whitlock uh, has written on this, professor at Truett McConnell University. And so the Anabaptists did not disagree with the Reformers on this. What they did teach is that faith ought to be a true faith. And if you have true faith, it moves from belief and heartwarming experience outward into actual obedience towards Jesus Christ. If you will, it's an early form of lordship salvation. Not only is he your savior, he is your Lord. And anything less struck them as antinomian, is not true Christianity. Mons was put to death for opposing the will of Zwingli in the city council in Zurich. But he taught still that Christianity requires true faith. True faith goes beyond mere mental assent. It goes beyond ceremonialism. True faith requires that one enter the new covenant through the blood of Christ, that one take up the cross that Christ, your Savior, your Lord, puts upon you about which we will speak more, Lord willing, during our next chapel service. Would you pray with me? Father, my heart is always touched by the Anabaptists. Father, when I look at my own life, when I look at us today, And then I go back and I read the trial records of how brave these men, women, and children were. When I hear about their experiences of hearing the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that all who believe would have eternal life. Lord, when I read about their conversion, their real conversions, Lord, when I read about how their conversion required them often 
to stand up in bold witness, to go and to keep going, and to speak scripture, and to encourage faithfulness, and to rebuke error. When I read, Lord, about how they paid the ultimate price, some four or 5,000 Anabaptists put to death for obeying our Lord's great commission. Lord, I am humbled. Lord, I am humbled because I do not have their passion as I often should. Lord, I am humbled when I look at the statistics of my own denomination and realize that in many ways we have lost our passion. Lord, when I look at the respect that they gave to one another, the dignity of humanity that they lifted up, Lord, when I think about how they were gentle even with their persecutors and sought to win their persecutors to the faith rather than trying to destroy them or keep them away, Lord, I am humbled. Father, send us a revival. Send us a revival in our hearts. Convict us of the truthfulness of your word. Lord, help us not only to talk about the Great Commission, but help us to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.